I'm Marianne Kolbesak McGee, Executive Editor at Information Security Media Group. Today I'm speaking with Scott Stewie, President and CEO of Direct Trust, a nonprofit alliance best known for the direct protocol based security and trust framework for secure email messaging and healthcare. Scott will be discussing a milestone recently reached by Direct Trust, as well as some of the work underway at the organization to further facilitate secure health information exchange in the healthcare sector. So, Scott, I understand that Direct Trust recently surpassed the transmission of 2 billion direct secure messages since the organization began tracking this in 2014. However, I understand that more than a third of this activity, or about 719 million direct secure messages sent and received between direct trust addresses, occurred in 2020, especially in the fourth quarter of 2020. So, Scott, is it fair to assess that that huge spike in direct secure messaging in 2020 was fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic? If so, why? You know, it's really interesting. The COVID pandemic had both effects on our network. So in the first two quarters, it actually caused a decline in direct secure messaging, 20 to 30 percent down from its uh, 2019 highs. And that's just because the number of encounters was off by as much as 60% on the ambulatory side and 30% on the, uh, on the inpatient side. So that's, that was a huge impact in the first two quarters. And we had somewhat of a rebound in the third, but the fourth quarter saw somewhat of a return to normal, although not really normal in the ambulatory setting. I think there's still a lot of practices that aren't having near what they had uh, prior to the, the COVID circumstance. But what they also saw was a traction with public health reporting that absolutely blew the the roof off of transactions volume. So um, a very big part of our transactions volume in 2020 was related to COVID-related reporting. So either uh, reporting that comes from provider organizations to public health through a protocol that they're, they're referring to as electronic case reporting. And then there's also the desire to communicate positive tests to providers from public health. So both of those vectors created a lot of transactions. My high-level expectation is that that may have been upwards to 100 million of our transactions in 2020 overall. So, Scott, with that said, what other kinds of direct secure messaging trends are you seeing? Is there more communication between clinicians that are working from remote locations during the pandemic? Are there communications between clinicians and patients that are stuck in quarantine or related to telehealth encounters? What are you seeing? Oh, we're definitely seeing some uh, changes in the way people are using direct messaging for communicating what we'd call care coordination. So letting folks know that a patient is on their way someplace. In fact, there's a desire to, and increasingly this is actually happening, where using direct messaging for communicating to non-healthcare entities about COVID-positive patients, for example, to homeless shelters and the like. So where you can, since direct messaging is a push messaging vector, the folks, if the patient says it's okay, they can send, you know, health information to a non-healthcare provider organization by saying, hey, by the way, your patient won't be coming home today. We're sending her to uh, another facility that is COVID-focused. So there's a lot of that kind of stuff that's going on with direct, but it's not just related to COVID. There's also a bunch of new transactions that are happening in the payer space. So as People try and figure out how to 
make the transition from fax to electronic mechanisms. Direct is absolutely the easiest thing to use and is the most like fax in terms of just use. So it's actually not that difficult for payers, for example, to communicate key information about patients to providers that they are currently sending by fax and that don't get handled or seen very readily. Now, that's really interesting because it's actually creating some new challenges for the network. I think our network has the potential of carrying all these kinds of traffic, but right now it's hard to tell what you're getting. And that's, I think, what's difficult for the receiving systems. They need a way to uh, tell these messages apart. They're today undifferentiated, so when they receive them, the transitions of care they get or the, you know, the COVID reporting they get or the referral they might get or a message from the payer aren't tagged differently today. And that's something that we're actually working on. So, Scott, also, what is the status of Direct Trust's trusted instant messaging that the organization has been working on? When might that get rolled out? And how does it differ from other secure texting platforms, especially for use in healthcare? So the whole difference between trusted instant messaging and just secure instant messaging between parties is that the idea is to make it possible to have platforms talk to each other. So uh, if I use one platform and you use another, can we have a secure communication where I will know who I'm talking to across that uh, divide? And what is interesting about this is that it's, it's really leveraging our current capabilities around proofing identity, the, the identity of individual participants in communication but in the healthcare realm, and extending that to this, this instant messaging uh, vector. So this instant messaging modality is different in that the, you know, the users are actually, you know, having an interactive communication with one another, but there's still a need to be certain that you're talking to who you think you are. That's the key element. The trusted element is knowing the identity of the person that you're actually communicating with and being able to easily see enough identifying information about that person as you communicate with them that you can readily be certain that you are, in fact, talking to who you think you are. That's the key element. As far as its status, we are at the point now where we're ready to give this a second connectathon. We're going to have a connectathon in April to test this in the wild and make certain that it kind of works. And I think it's our expectation that a couple of organizations will be provisionally accredited yet this year and intend to deploy what we call Tim Plus Trusted Instant Messaging Plus to their clients in the platforms that they already have and making those available for connections to the other parties that offer similar services in their platform. That's very exciting. I think we're, we're thinking that that could happen in Q3 and Q4. So, Scott, as you know, there is an overall push by federal regulators to expand and advance secure health information exchange among healthcare providers, health IT platforms, as well as to support patients' secure access to their own digital health records. A key goal in these efforts is to improve care coordination and patient outcomes. As you look out at the healthcare delivery landscape, what are some of the top security and privacy hurdles that you think are still facing the sector in the exchange of patient data, as well as patients securely accessing their own records? You know, it's really interesting the way the, the, the information blocking rule imagines all this will happen is 
through the use of fire. I think that this has a great potential to solve many of the problems that have plagued patients getting access to their own records in the past, uh, which is to basically make patients' records available through an app of their own choosing using a, an API, a, an application programmer's interface, which is a technical mechanism that allows things like smartphones to talk to health systems, which is, I think, a really exciting approach. Now, the challenge that they're going to have and kind of the simplifying assumption that they made was, well, if I'm going to secure that information, I'm going to depend upon the provider having met the patient and established their identity and given them a credential to the healthcare portal, the, the patient portal at the health system, and they're going to use that same credential when they use their app. That's the current approach that they're uh, talking about deploying. That, I think, will work as far as it goes. Now, the, the challenge is if what you're trying to do is actually make it so that things are interoperable between systems, like between healthcare systems, what you'd like to imagine is the patient could get identity proofed and get issued a credential that might be good in more than one location. Um, and the challenge is to establish the trust between those locations. You're going to have to have a mechanism for issuing identities that is considered highly reliable and that can actually then also solve the problem of ensuring that the records that are being released to this patient are in fact the patients. So these are the problems. There's there's two related issues. One, can I get one credential that would allow me to get access to my records regardless of where I went? That's one thought. But then the question is, once I've got that credential, can I be sure that the person who actually is the owner of that credential matches the records of the, that are being requested from a given uh, provider organization? That's the challenge that we're struggling because patient matching remains a real challenge too. So. I think that the security angle on this is, is actually really interesting and it is not fully developed in the rule. This also has a huge impact in the, the COVID vaccination space. So there's this desire to have vaccination passports that I think a lot of folks have read about. The uh, part that I think is straightforward about the vaccination passport approach is that you could securely get this passport on your phone and store it in that wallet that you have in your smartphone. Now that, I think, makes perfect sense. Now the question is, who establishes the veracity of the reporting about your COVID vaccination status? So if you get a vaccination record, how do I know that that in fact came from a bona fide location? And so that is a good job for a trust framework. So once you know who somebody is and by who, I mean, is this really a clinical laboratory? And is this really the clinical laboratory where the patient had the vaccination? So those kinds of problems, all of those entities need to be reliably identity-proofed and then associated. And that's, that is going to be difficult to do quickly in one year. But at some point when such a thing occurs and such a thing exists, it will occur because of the use of a direct trust framework. So a, a trust framework that supports identity-proofing of the various constituencies in healthcare and allows for the information that they're sharing to be known to be true because it is, in fact, itself signed and, and digitally assured. I think that's really the uh, where we are right now is uh, we've got the necessary backbone to do this stuff. We just 
have a lot of work to do to actually knit all this into a fabric that can actually produce the kind of value we need to solve the problems we have today with secure communication and healthcare. And Scott, you brought up the issue of credentials as patients are allowed to more easily access their health records, whether it's you know via their smartphones, via APIs such as Fire. What about the issue of potentially stolen credentials? We hear so much about that. Is there sort of a time bomb there potentially in terms of patients' credentials being stolen and then a new wave of new kinds of potential health data breaches that we might see or that the healthcare sector needs to be thinking about? Well, every time you enable a new capability, you also enable a new threat. (laughs) So I think you're exactly right. Uh, The cybersecurity threats that we face today where new capabilities are being deployed are going to absolutely multiply. And so that's the reason why the kinds of accreditation that are required to ensure that the parties that participate in these kinds of exchange are nimble and change as, as the threat levels change. Because... Frankly, you can't be certain that things are going to stay the same from year to year. There's, there's absolutely new threats. Now, I think with digital credentials, the advantage to digital credentials, unlike paper credentials, is that they can easily be revoked, not just the authorization to use them, but literally the revocation of the, the credential itself. So, you know, being able to basically disallow somebody to get access to something because you can basically take away their, their sign-on. Uh, or you can you know, uh, disable their credential in some other way by perhaps revoking a certificate, if that's the mechanism that, that allows for the credential to be issued. Those kinds of things are what really make it possible to create a, a resilient uh, ecosystem. In the absence of revocability, you really have a, a very a rough road ahead. I mean, anytime you issue something that can't be easily revoked, then you really run the risk of, of having those breaches become permanent. The example I'll use is, is the social security number, which nobody should ever have thought was really private since it's just a number that could easily be known and that frankly was, you know, like for my wife and I, I think they were, you know, they were our student ID numbers back in the day. I mean, the social security numbers have never really been treated as private, but now they are actually far from private and, and frank, frankly just available on the dark web for practically everybody in the United States. And so once you've lost control of something like that, then it just it loses its value as a credential. So that's the reason that digital credentials are so useful. They can be issued and then revoked or controlled in some other manner. That's the key element about digital credentials that makes them more valuable than just a, you know, a number that's, that might be printed on a card. And finally, Scott, very briefly, what's next for Direct Trust? What should we be keeping our eyes on during 2021? Well, the big thing we're working on right now, and actually is our major focus, is a, an event notifications via direct standard that we're working on as a draft standard for trial use. And that, that document, I think, is going to have a huge impact, not just on the notifications work we're doing, which is in response to the CMS rule, but it's also going to have an impact on direct messaging as a whole. And the reason for that is because it's the first use case where all the messages that we're sending will have the information about the message, the metadata or the context that can tell the receiver what this message is so that they can route it appropriately. Increasingly, receivers want to have enough information on the message to route this information to the right 
user to activate the right workflow to so the individual users can bring the things that are most important to them to the top. Those kinds of things will make it much easier for us to, for instance, enable those payer transactions I talked about so that providers don't find them as in their way but instead useful because they can get into the right place. I think that's probably the biggest thing we're working on this, this year. We're really focused on getting direct trust, the direct trust network to be a context-aware network so that messages are no longer undifferentiated, but in fact, you can tell what messages are about and who they're about as you receive them. Thanks, Scott. I've been speaking to Scott Stewie of Direct Trust. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.